Hello, fellow teachers. Welcome to Teaching with Power. I'm Ben Wilcox, and I want to welcome you to our study this week of the book of Job. And I just wanted to begin by saying thank you to all of my loyal listeners and watchers out there who join me each week to study the scriptures. I'm so grateful for you. You are the reason that I do this channel. And I do really pray and I hope that the things that I share each week with you are helping you to be better students of the scriptures and better teachers of the scriptures. So if you're ready, grab your scriptures and your marking pencils. It's time to dig deep. The story of Job is part of what we would call the wisdom literature of the Bible. Books like Job and Ecclesiastes seek to examine some of the deepest and most difficult questions of life. And in the case of Job, we're going to examine the problem of human suffering. And Victor Hugo once said that he felt that the book of Job was the greatest masterpiece of the human mind. And that kind of makes sense, since Victor Hugo also liked to write about suffering and miserable people. But scholars and historians have long debated whether Job was an actual person or simply a literary character used to examine a theological question. Personally, I think it's a little bit of both. We in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints have the benefit of modern scripture to help us to answer that question. While in Liberty Jail, Joseph Smith received an answer to a prayer in the depths of his own suffering. And in that answer, God gave Joseph the following line of comfort. He said, Thou art not yet as Job. Thy friends do not contend against thee, neither charge thee with transgression as they did Job. Now, to me, it doesn't make much sense for God to offer that as comfort if Job wasn't a real person. I mean, how much comfort would it give you if your friends tried to cheer you up by comparing your life to a fictional character? Uh, oh, oh, don't worry about this. At least things aren't as bad for you as they were for Jean Valjean or Wiley Coyote. You'll get through this. And that's probably not going to be very helpful, is it? And also, James, in the New Testament, refers to the patience of Job in his book. Again, lending credibility to the idea that he was real. So Job's almost certainly a real person. On the other hand, the book of Job is also clearly poetic and has a lot of literary qualities to it. For one, it's written in poetic verse. Much of the plot reads like a novel, and the details do seem a bit exaggerated in places. Incredible. So personally, I believe that the story of Job is based on a real person who did suffer much, who experienced a lot of pain and loss in a short amount of time, but that the author has taken that real-life inspiration and used it as a vehicle to examine the question of suffering. His main intent was to teach a lesson and not give a biographical journalistic account of somebody's life. And for example, the very first chapters of Job, where we have God talking to Satan and making a deal with him to allow him to afflict Job, I definitely believe that that's not a description of real events. That'd be quite troubling to me if it were. I mean, is God really going to let Job suffer like this so that he can win a bet with Satan? I don't think so. The Come Follow Me manual even makes that point. It says, the opening chapters of Job are intended to emphasize Satan's role as our adversary or accuser, not to describe how God and Satan really interact. So I feel that there's a good deal of literary license taken in the book of Job. But based on that verse in the Doctrine and Covenants in James, I also have confidence that we're dealing with a real person who did in fact suffer in the extreme. And today, as we examine the life of Job, I'd like to focus our attention on four specific truths that I feel this great book teaches us. As an icebreaker, I like to start with something maybe just a bit more lighthearted because the subject matter of Job is going to get much more somber as we go along. So I just like to show a number of bad day pictures. Here are just a few examples of people who are probably having a worse day than you are. Here we go.
Now, aren't those just terrible, right? Now, even as bad as those people have it, there is a character in the Bible who had a much, much worse day than any of them. I think a far more worse day than than most of us could ever imagine. The man was Job. And today we're going to take a look at his life to see if it can help us to understand what we can do when those bad days, weeks, months, or even years strike. And the first thing we need to consider is Job's character. What kind of a man was he? And to discover his character, you could hand out a printed scripture reference from Job to nine different individuals. And I'll make a sheet available that already has all the assignments printed that that you could cut and hand out. And their assignment is to look up that particular reference and to be prepared to read it to the class. And as they read, the class is going to listen for details that they learn about Job's character. Invite another student to come to the board and, and write down all the qualities that the class is identifying. And also, before the verses are read, Encourage the entire class to create a label on page 679 with the title Job's Character and invite them to mark each of these verses in that specific color. And from those verses, here's what we learn about Job. From chapter 1, verse 1, he was perfect, upright. He feared God or respected God and eschewed or avoided evil. That's how we're introduced to him. And perfect in this sense doesn't mean that he never sinned or made any mistakes. It's a word that basically means that Job was a righteous man. His heart was in the right place. He strove to be obedient to his father's will. He was committed to his faith. Maybe a better word there would be just. He was a just man, a righteous man. Chapter 4, verses 3 through 4. He instructed many, he strengthened weak hands, he supported those who were falling, and strengthened the feeble knees. So Job was charitable. He was benevolent. He reached out to lend his strength to the weak and the feeble. From 23, 11 through 12, he walked the straight and narrow path. He did not go back from the commandments of God. So he was obedient. He always sought to choose the right. From 29, 12 through 16, lots of great things here. He helped the poor, cared for orphans, for those whom no one else would help. He helped widows, the blind, the lame, and even searched out for people that he could help. He was proactive with his generosity and kindness. He didn't let them just find him. He went out to look for them. So Job was giving and caring. 31.1 He says he made a covenant to his wife, and why then would he think about a maid? So not only is he pure in deed, but but pure in thought as well. He said, I'm not going to look at another woman to to lust after her. He was chaste. 31.24 Job may have been rich, but he didn't place his heart on riches. He didn't make gold his hope or confidence, but he found that in God. He didn't allow the love of money to corrupt him. So Job was not materialistic or greedy. 31, 29, 30. He never found joy in the suffering of his enemies and never wished evil on them. Job was forgiving. He was thoughtful, even even to his enemies. He had no ill intent in his heart for anybody. That's a great reflection of the teaching of the Savior on the Sermon on the Mount, where he taught us to love our enemies, to bless those that curse us, and to do good to them that hate us. In 31.32, we find that he opened his home to strangers. He was hospitable. And then 31.33, he didn't try to hide his sins and imperfections. He was sincere about his weaknesses and and humble about them. He didn't claim to be a perfect individual or, or ever lift up his head in arrogance because of his righteousness. So after looking at those verses, would you consider Job to be a good man? Yeah, more than a good man. One of the best. And it's very important that we understand that because that's what gives the rest of the story its real power. In the contrast here, Job was among the best of men and yet he experiences some of the worst things imaginable. 
The story is set up in chapter 1, and here we have God and Satan having an imaginary conversation. Now remember, this is just a hypothetical situation written to set up the big question of the story, a question that we've all got to face at some time in our lives. Satan is given a title in the book of Revelation, Revelation 12.10, and what is it? The accuser. Satan is the great accuser of our brethren. Well, here in Job chapter 1, Satan plays that role masterfully. And what's the accusation he makes in Job 1 verses 9 through 11? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Doth Job fear God for naught? Hast not thou made an hedge about him and about his house and about all that he hath on every side? Thou hast blessed the work of his hands, and his substance is increased in the land. But put forth thine hand now, and touch all that he hath, and he will curse thee to thy face. And then later in chapter 2, after Satan's initial efforts are unsuccessful, he ups the ante, and he says, Skin for skin, yea, all that a man hath will he give for his life. But put forth thine hand now, and touch his bone and his flesh and he will curse thee to thy face. So the accusation is this. The only reason Job is righteous is because he has it so good. He's got things way too easy. He's got great wealth, a big family, great health, the respect of his fellow man. But if you were to afflict him, or he lost all of those things, he'd curse you. He'd abandon you. And that's the compelling question that the book of Job asks us all to consider. Would trials and difficulties cause you to lose your faith and loyalty to God? That's one of the biggest questions of life, even. If everything we hold dear were taken away from us and we were plunged into deep hardship, would we still hold to our faith? Would we still love, trust, and honor our Father in heaven under those trying circumstances? If we lost our job, if our spouse died, if we lost a child, if we contracted a terminal illness, if we became the victim of a terrible crime. It's a difficult question to answer, short of experiencing Job-like adversity, which none of us would ever wish for. But that's the question the book of Job's asking us to ponder and to wrestle with. So let's see how Job handles it. Because in the story, God does indeed allow this challenge to take place. And the Lord said unto Satan, Behold, he is in thine hand, but save his life. So Satan, you can do whatever you want to him, just don't kill him. So what happens to Job then as a result of this deal? Well, let's do another activity that can help us to see the various ways in which Job's life transforms. And up on my board, I put six arrows pointing to the right. And together with my class, we read the following sets of verses. And their task is to determine what major change is occurring in Job's life based on those references. He goes from what to what. So in 1, 14 through 17, Job loses all that made him prosperous and wealthy. And back then, your wealth wasn't measured in cars, homes, and bank accounts, but livestock servants. And Job loses all of it within a matter of moments. So he goes from rich to poor. In 1, 18 through 19, if that weren't bad enough, here's a trial on a totally different level. What's the transformation here? He loses all of his children, all of them at once. Imagine the shock to the system that must have been. I've known a number of families who have actually lost a child, and I know how difficult it was for them. But to have 10 children die, and all on the same day? <laughs> That's suffering on an, an entire other level. He goes from a large family to no children at all. In 2 verses 7 through 8, we see the adversary start to afflict Job physically. He gets sick and covered in boils from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. Boils are incredibly painful and irritating. 
They go deep into your skin and they make you itch. And they cover his entire body. And all he can do is scrape himself with a piece of broken pottery for some semblance of relief. If you've ever suffered physically before, then you know how hard it is to be happy when you're in pain. Job here is in constant pain and in a day without modern medicine to help manage it. So he goes from health to sickness and pain. From chapter 2, verse 9, and then 19, 13 through 19. This is a real sad one. We learn from 2, 9 about how Job's wife responds to his suffering. Then said his wife unto him, Dost thou still retain thine integrity? Curse God and die. She doesn't sound very supportive there, now does she? His wife is basically telling him to just die? Still, to be fair to Mrs. Job, she too is suffering greatly at this time, and she's also lost her wealth and her children as well. So I try not to be too hard on her. And it appears that by the end of the story, when all things are resolved, that they are still married, and they go on to have more children and live happily ever after. So she eventually passes the test as well. But in the other verses in chapter 19, we learn that his other family and friends and servants and the community around him forget about him. They despise him. So he goes from support to rejection. Chapter 7, verse 4 and verses 13 through 14. Sometimes when we suffer, there's only one release that we get from it all. Sleep. Sleep is the only time when we really get to escape the terrors of reality for at least a little bit. But what happens to Job? When I lie down, I say, when shall I arise and the night be gone? And I am full of tossings to and fro into the dawning of the day. And verses 13 and 14, when I say my bed shall comfort me, my couch shall ease my complaints. Then thou scarest me with dreams and terrifiest me through visions. So whenever he tries to go to sleep, he tosses and turns and just wishes for the day. And if he does actually succeed in falling asleep, he has terrible nightmares. So even sleep isn't a relief for Job. He goes from sleep to nightmares. Finally, in these last set of verses, we see in 29.21 that before his great misfortune, Job was given great respect by the people around him. He was upheld as an esteemed member of the community. But in chapter 30, verses 10 through 12, they abhor me, they flee far from me, and spare not to spit in my face. Because he hath loosed my cord and afflicted me, they have also let loose the bridle before me. Upon my right hand rise the youth, they push away my feet, and they raise up against me the ways of their destruction. So he loses all respect from the people around him. The youth are pushing away his feet or or tripping him up mocking him. What's the change? He goes from great respect to great ridicule. And don't you just feel for Job here as you look at that list? To have such a devastating turn of events in his life must have been almost unbearable. And then there's one more trial that I'd like to add here. The horrid icing on this terrible nightmare of a cake. Look in the following verses. Chapter 10, verse 2. I will say unto God, Do not condemn me. Shew me wherefore thou contendest with me. In chapter 13, 22 through 24, Then call thou, and I will answer, or let me speak, and answer thou me. How many are mine iniquities and sins? Make me to know my transgression and my sin. Wherefore hidest thou thy face, and holdest me for thine enemy? And then 19.7, Behold, I cry out of wrong, but I'm not heard. I cry aloud, but there's no judgment. The thing that makes this all harder is that he doesn't even understand why it's happening. God's offering no explanation. It's only silence. That may be one of the toughest things to endure when it comes to our trials. If we were to just know the purpose behind it all, know the end from the beginning, If we could understand God's wisdom and why he's allowing such things to happen, that might make it much easier to endure them. 
But often we don't get those answers immediately, or if at all, in this life. And somebody who I feel described this state of being extremely well is C.S. Lewis. When he lost his beloved wife, Joy, to cancer, he felt that same emptiness and questioning. He described his feelings like this. Meanwhile, where is God? This is one of the most disquieting symptoms. When you are happy, so happy that you have no sense of needing him, so happy that you're tempted to feel his claims upon you as an interruption. If you remember yourself and turn to him with gratitude and praise, you will be, or so it feels, welcomed with open arms. But go to him when your need is desperate, when all other help is vain. And what do you find? A door slammed in your face, a sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside. After that, silence. You may as well turn away. The longer you wait, the more emphatic the silence will become. There are no lights in the windows. What can this mean? Why is he so present a commander in our time of prosperity and so very absent a help in time of trouble? Not that I am, I think, in much danger of ceasing to believe in God. The real danger is of coming to believe such dreadful things about him. The conclusion I dread isn't, so there's no God after all, but, so this is what God's really like. Deceive yourself no longer. That's, that's definitely coming from a man who's feeling deep pain and confusion. And perhaps some of you out there have felt similarly in your own life, in your own griefs. We'll come back to Lewis later. But there's something that we've learned here from these two activities. Any thoughts on what that might be? Our first activity showed that Job was a very good man. Our second activity showed all the very bad things that happened to him. And what we're seeing here is one of the most unsettling truths about mortality, a truth so troubling that it will even cause some to lose their faith in God completely. What is it? Apparently, God allows bad things to happen to good people. In fact, with the story of Job, we could even adjust it a bit. God can allow very bad things to happen to very good people. Now, you may not really want people to share their answers to this like in the scriptures question out loud, but perhaps just have them raise their hands if they can relate. Can you think of any examples of that truth from your own life? Can you think of, of people or yourself where, where bad things happen to you when, when you didn't deserve them? I'm sure that we all can. And that's not where we're going to end today, though. That would be far too discouraging to leave it just at that. It's an unfortunate truth, but the book of Job has so much more to teach us about it. Now that this has happened to him, the rest of the book is going to tackle the question of why. Why does God allow bad things to happen to good people? And we find two answers highlighted. The wrong answer and God's answer. So first, the wrong answer. The bulk of the book of Job is devoted to conversations held between Job and some of his friends, quote-unquote. Each one of these friends comes forward with their theory for why Job is suffering. And it's all basically the same theory. Pages and pages of this book are dedicated to this one thought. A theory for human suffering that has been prevalent for ages, and many still struggle with today. And it's exemplified in the things that these friends of Job say. And as a teacher, there's really no need to lead your students through large swaths of text to make this point. Instead, you could just give them a sampling of some of the verses that really exemplify their answer. What is their reason for why Job is suffering? Can you figure it out here? In Job 5.17, Behold, Happy is the man whom God correcteth. Therefore, despise not thou the chastening of the Almighty. In Job 8.6, If thou wert pure and upright, surely now he would awake for thee, and make the habitation of thy righteousness prosperous. And then 11.6, And that he would shew thee the secrets of wisdom, that they are double to that which is. Know therefore that God exacteth of thee less than thy iniquity deserveth. 
So what's their explanation? Why is Job suffering so deeply? Well, to them, because he's obviously done something really wrong. God's correcting him, chastening him, ignoring him. And then that last one really gets me. He's exacting less than his iniquity deserves. God's punishing him for some kind of an iniquity that just isn't outwardly apparent to everybody else. In Job's friend's reasoning, God cannot be unjust. Suffering must have a cause, and sin must be that cause. Therefore, in their misguided understanding of mortality, Job has sinned. It's probably why Job has lost respect in his community or why people are treating him so poorly, even though he was so good to everybody else in their trials. For someone to experience that deep a level of ruin and sorrow must be an indicator of God's disapproval of them, right? He's got to be guilty of some major offense. He's no longer worthy of our respect. Why else would things fall apart so quickly? I'm afraid there's a tendency for the natural man to rejoice over the fall of a once-respected and worthy person. Tabloids and newscasts provide ample proof of that. So, their answer? Job, you've done something wrong to deserve this. Now, two questions. What's Job's reaction to that theory? And then, what's God's reaction to that theory? First Job's, 16.2. I have heard many such things. Miserable comforters are you all. (laughs) Job's not too impressed with the conclusions of his friends. It's not a helpful thing to say to somebody in pain. Well, you probably did something wrong. You deserve this. And then he says in 16, 4 through 5, I also could speak as you do. If your soul were in my soul's stead, I could heap up words against you and shake mine head at you. But I would strengthen you with my mouth, and the moving of my lips should assuage your grief. That's not what they're doing. They're contending against him, charging him with transgression, as the Doctrine and Covenant says. And then you've got God's reaction in chapter 42, verse 7. And it was so that after the Lord had spoken these words unto Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My wrath is kindled against thee and against thy two friends, for ye have not spoken of me the thing that is right, as my servant Job hath. And so there we have it, right from the mouth of God. The conclusion of Job's friends was not the right explanation. They got it wrong. So truth number two, what did we just learn from the book of Job? Suffering and adversity are not an indication of God's displeasure or punishment. And it could be that making that point was the major reason for writing the book of Job in the first place, since so much of its content focuses on it. The explanation of Job's friends is shallow. It doesn't help us. Unfortunately, their thinking is still dominant today. Even amongst good members of the church, we may equate negative life experiences with lack of worthiness, when in reality the truth is far more complicated. We can happily dismiss the answer of Job's friends as false. Before we continue, it is true that suffering and adversity can be the result of bad choices. For example, if somebody smokes and drinks for years, and then their health starts to fail, then yeah, their own choices brought them pain and suffering. But even then, I don't believe that it's God punishing them for not following his word of wisdom. Those are just the natural consequences of not following God's laws of health. And a favorite quote regarding that truth, Albert Hubbard, he said, men are punished by their sins, not for them. And so because of that truth, that uh, suffering and adversity are, are not an indication of God's displeasure or punishment, I know that the reason 9-11 happened was not because the people in those towers were wicked. I know that the reason my mom died of cancer wasn't because she was being punished for her mistakes. I know that the reason people are born with handicaps or physical challenges isn't because of something they did wrong or that God doesn't love them. I know that when people die 
in earthquakes, tsunamis, hurricanes. That that's not a message of God's displeasure to the people in those locations. These are simply the products of living in a mortal, fallen world. Let's be careful not to make the mistake of Job's friends in trying to understand life's injustices and calamities. Let's give people the benefit of the doubt and not accuse them of of some wrongdoing. What is the correct answer then? If that's not the explanation, then what is it? Why is Job suffering? In chapters 38 to 41, God is actually going to speak to Job here. And a heads up here. You'll notice that I labeled this section God's answer in quotation marks and a question mark at the end. God's answer isn't going to be your typical one. He's not going to just come straightforwardly out and say it in black and white. The answer is going to be found in between the lines in the white space on the page. God goes on for four chapters with his answer. And we're not going to read them all, but I just want to give you a taste of what he's saying. It's all the same theme. As as I read some of these to you, what point do you feel that God is trying to make? From chapter 38, verses 4 through 6, Job, where wast thou when I laid the foundations of the earth? Declare, if thou hast understanding. Who hath laid the measures thereof, if thou knowest? Or who hath stretched the line upon it? Whereupon are the foundations thereof fastened? Or who laid the cornerstone thereof? 18 and 19. Hast thou perceived the breadth of the earth? Declare, if thou knowest it all. Where is the way where light dwelleth? And as for darkness, where is the place thereof? 22. Hast thou entered into the treasures of the snow? Or hast thou seen the treasures of the hail? I like that image. Like there's a big storehouse up there in in heaven that holds all of the snow and and hail. And when God wants a storm, he he opens them up and, and showers them down on us. Verse 35. Canst thou send lightnings that they may go and say unto thee, here we are? That's a very, very poetic image, isn't it? And what is it that says, here we are, after lightning strikes? Thunder. It's referring to thunder. From chapter 39, verse 13. Gavest thou the goodly wings unto the peacocks, or wings and feathers unto the ostrich? Verse 19. Hast thou given the horse strength? Hast thou clothed his neck with thunder? 26 and 27. Doth the hawk fly by thy wisdom, and stretch her wings toward the south? Doth the eagle mount up at thy command? and make her nest on high? Chapter 40, verses 1 and 2. Moreover, the Lord answered Job and said, Shall he that contendeth with the Almighty instruct him? He that reproveth God, let him answer it. Then 8 and 9. Wilt thou also disannul my judgment? Wilt thou condemn me, that thou mayest be righteous? Hast thou an arm like God? Or canst thou thunder with a voice like him? And you know, it just kind of goes on and on like that throughout all four chapters. You may have noticed something. It's all just questions, aren't they? Question after question. And what do you think is the point that God is trying to make here? What's the answer to each of those questions he's asking? It's no. Job and all of us have to admit I don't have your power, God. I don't have your understanding. I don't comprehend all that you comprehend. Even our modern, scientifically advanced world can't answer all of these questions regarding the universe, the weather, the behavior of animals. So Job concludes in chapter 42, verses 2 through 3, I know that thou canst do everything, and that no thought can be withholden from thee. Who is he that hideth counsel without knowledge? Therefore have I uttered that I understood not. Things too wonderful for me, which I knew not. The questions that God's asking Job here are not just to to show God's superior knowledge. It's, It's not God boasting. It's to create in Job and all of us a sense of wonder at the sheer majesty of his creation and his wisdom. Surely a God with such power and understanding and grandeur is a God worthy of our trust. And that 
really is the gist of God's answer here. We've got to learn to trust in God, trust his plan for us, trust his goodness. And the evidence of his goodness and his power and his knowledge is all around us. So rather than giving Job the exact reason for why he's allowed such affliction into his life, he appeals to Job's heart. He says, look at my world and my wonders. It's beautiful. It's ordered. It works. Don't you think I also know how to order the lives of my children? That I know what's best and what will bring you the most glory and knowledge and experience in the future? You may not understand all things now from your mortal, limited perspective, but you will someday. Until then, trust me. Remember the quote that I shared from a a grieving C.S. Lewis earlier? He too came to a similar conclusion as the book of Job about his own grief. He began to recognize that he misunderstood something about that seemingly locked, dark, an empty house. He said, And so, perhaps with God, I have gradually been coming to feel that the door is no longer shut and bolted. Was it my own frantic need that slammed it in my face? The time when there is nothing at all in your soul except a cry for help may be just the time when God can't give it. You are like the drowning man who can't be helped because he clutches and grabs. Perhaps your own Reiterated cries deafen you to the voice you hope to hear. On the other hand, knock and it shall be opened. But does knocking mean hammering and kicking the door like a maniac? When I lay these questions before God, I get no answer, but a rather special sort of no answer. It's not the locked door. It's more like a a silent, certainly not uncompassionate gaze, as though he shook his head, not in refusal, but waving the question, like, peace, child, you don't understand. The truth here that I believe that the book of Job is trying to to communicate with us is that we must learn to trust in the wisdom and power of a loving God that indeed does allow us to experience pain and loss in this life. And one day, we'll understand why. Not alike in the scriptures here. What do you personally think about God's answer in the book of Job? Is it satisfactory to you? Why or why not? And then are you willing to trust in God until you do understand? And to be honest, I've really wrestled with that question myself, as I'm sure most of you have. With some trials and hardships that we face in life, that answer does make sense, and I see the wisdom in it. But with other things, that's an explanation that's much harder to swallow. When I think of some of the really terrible things that some people have had to endure in this life, I struggle with the answer a bit more. A few quick thoughts, though, about human suffering and its purpose. Remember that it's God's design to make us all God's and to give us an opportunity to live a life like his own and to become like him. And if we were to ask ourselves, what is God like? Our answers would probably include things like kindness, long-suffering, patience, meekness, compassion, mercy. But where do these attributes come from? Ease and prosperity? No, in order to magnify mankind, It seems that God must put us through the refining fires of adversity. Out of pain and suffering come almost all the most positive character traits that God wants for his children. Nothing quite refines the character like suffering. It's opposition that creates strength, adversity that brings experience, and hardship that generates wisdom and patience. As a parent myself, Would I choose to remove all difficulty and pain from the lives of my children? Do I feel like that would be good for them? I don't think it would. I know that that would be counterproductive to their growth. And I know that's easy to say right now when when everything's okay and they're doing just fine. 
But what would I do if I actually saw them suffering greatly? If I saw them in pain, wouldn't I be tempted to stop it if I could? Probably, yeah, I would. And does God always do that? No, he doesn't. I know that's difficult to grasp. That's where the trust comes in. I imagine that that's one of the hardest things that God ever has to do in his position. It's to constrain his power, to not intervene in the affairs of man when he sees his beloved children suffering. And the righteous will suffer in this life. And the wicked don't always suffer. Perhaps the reason is that God wanted us to be good for the sake of goodness. If righteousness were always immediately rewarded and wickedness quickly punished, self-interest would make us godly and fear would compel us to be saints. Because it's often otherwise, our commitment to goodness and integrity has got to be inspired by deeper resources than mere immediate consequences. Even knowing that, I still struggle at times with the question of why good people have bad things happen to them. But Nephi's words in response to the questioning angel, they come to mind here. I know that God loveth his children. Nevertheless, I do not know the meaning of all things. That's the way I feel sometimes. It takes humility and faith to answer like that. Nephi had that faith. So did Job. And so must we. Now for the final truth of our Job lesson. For this, I'd like to do the following icebreaker. And it's an object lesson. And what you'll need is a number of heavy and awkward objects to carry. And then you'll also need a wagon or a wheeled cart a furniture dolly, or just something with wheels that can carry a lot of weight. And invite a student to come to the front, and and what you'll do is you'll just start loading them up with all the different heavy and awkward objects. You can explain that each one of those represent a different trial or challenge that a person may be facing in their life. You can even name some of them. This book represents getting sick. Uh, This object represents struggling at home, etc., and then ask them to try and carry those items across the room. Give them enough that it becomes really difficult to move or or to get to the other side without dropping them or exerting a lot of effort. But then ask them if they can think of any better solutions to getting those objects to the other side of the room. If they suggest that you could just drop the objects and leave them, tell them that that's not really possible because we know that God doesn't just take away our trials because we want him to. But what might help if we've got to carry them with us? Let them guess a little. And then you could pull out the wagon or the cart and ask, how might this come in handy? And with the wagon, the weight of the objects doesn't change. Uh, They're still the exact same things and they still weigh the same. But what's the difference? They're much easier to move. I used to work at a furniture store as a young man, and I was always amazed at the size and weight of the objects I could move with just a simple furniture dolly. Things far too heavy for me to lift could glide along the floor with minimal effort on on that dolly. Well, now let's discuss the real miracle of Job. The fact that he doesn't fall. The fact that he stays righteous even when his suffering is so great and undeserved. Job was able to carry that weight and endure to the end. How? He had a wagon. He had a furniture dolly, so to speak, that allowed him to stay faithful under the weight of all his burdens. That harkens back to the great personal question that the book of Job asked us to ponder that I mentioned earlier. Would great trials and difficulties cause me to lose my faith and loyalty to God? When it comes to Job, all the things that we would say bring happiness are taken from him, and yet he stays firm. Let's let's examine how he does that, because perhaps that'll help us to know what we can do when we face, more than likely, lesser hardships than he did. In the Doctrine and Covenants, God made a promise to Joseph Smith that if he endured his sufferings well, God would exalt him on high. 
The key word in that phrase is well. Joseph needed to endure it well. Because we really have no choice but to endure our suffering. Everybody endures their adversities. But not everybody endures them well. Job is somebody who I feel exemplifies the process of enduring it well. So what helped Job to endure it well? Let's take a look here. You could do this search activity as a handout and then send your students into the scriptures to study the following sets of verses, looking for the things that helped Job to carry his burden successfully. Then you can tell your students that if they get hung up with any of the references, not to worry too much, but just to move on to the next one. And then discuss those with the class and invite students to share what they learned. There are five sets of verses. Job 1, 20 through 22. Then Job arose and rent his mantle and shaved his head and fell down upon the ground and worshiped and said, Naked came I out of my mother's womb and naked shall I return thither. The Lord gave and the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this Job sinned not nor charged God foolishly. So what does Job understand here? It's apparent that Job understands mortality. He understands that trials are a necessary part of his life. Life gives sometimes, and life takes away. He's not overly attached to his material possessions. He came into the world naked, owning nothing, and he knows that he'll die in the same state. He won't be able to take it with him anyway. So if those material things were taken just a little earlier, then he was okay with that. Regardless of what happened to him, he knew where his loyalties lay. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And what does it mean to charge God foolishly? We charge God foolishly when we blame him for all of our troubles and problems. We charge God foolishly when we lose our faith or abandon our devotion to him when things get tough. We charge God foolishly when we do what Job's wife suggests he do, to curse God and die. We charge God foolishly when we say, unless this problem is solved in such and such a way or at such and such a time, or else I'll not believe or I won't obey. Job does none of those things. Instead, he does what he does in Job 13, 15. Though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. But I will maintain mine own ways before him. These are some of the most important things that we've got to learn to do as disciples of Christ. Trust and maintain. Trust and maintain. Job trusts in God, and so must we. We've got to learn to trust that his commandments are the best way to live. We've got to trust that his promised blessings are one day going to come to pass. We've got to learn to trust his timing. We've got to learn to trust his wisdom in the way that he runs his universe. Therefore, don't give up on your faith. Maintain your ways before him. Don't give up on your obedience and don't give up on his gospel. Job 19, 23 through 27. Oh, that my words were now written. Oh, that they were printed in a book. I actually find that kind of humorous. You know, he's saying, somebody ought to write this down. This should be recorded in a book somewhere. Oh, well, well, here it is, Job, written down right here in this book. A little biblical irony for you. That they were graven with an iron pen and led in the rock forever. For I know that my Redeemer liveth, and that he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth. And though after my skin worms destroy this body, Yet in my flesh shall I see God, whom I shall see for myself, and mine eyes shall behold, and not another, though my reins be consumed within me. What helps him through his hard times? His faith in his Redeemer. His faith in the resurrection and the atonement of Jesus Christ. Even though he knows that worms would eventually destroy his mortal body, didn't matter. He has faith and confidence that future glory and salvation await him. He will see God in the flesh. Sometimes that may be the only thing that can really get us through. A realization that Christ will overcome all. Joseph Smith once made the following promise to the saints. All your losses will be made up to you in the resurrection, provided you continue faithful. By the vision of the Almighty, I have seen it. So it doesn't matter what we lose in this life. It will be restored. 
And that doesn't apply to just our physical bodies. All things will be renewed. All things made glorious. Which reminds me of one of my favorite verses of Scripture of all time. Revelation 21.4 And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. That's the kind of faith that Job is demonstrating in chapter 19. He found comfort and strength in the knowledge of Jesus Christ his Redeemer. And Job 27, verses 5 through 6. God forbid that I should justify you. Till I die, I will not remove mine integrity from me. My righteousness I hold fast, and I will not let it go. My heart shall not reproach me so long as I live. This can mean one of two things here. For one, Job is committed to maintaining his integrity even in the face of challenge. He'll not give up on God and his righteousness. He'll continue strong in the faith and endure to the end. But there's another way of interpreting those verses. Remember that Job's friends are accusing him of iniquity. Their explanation for his suffering is that he must be being punished for some sin that they're just not aware of. But Job refuses to remove his confidence in his righteousness. He knows he's a good man. He knows he's done the right things. I don't think he's claiming perfection, but but he is claiming integrity. That's an important thing to keep in mind when we suffer. We've got to be careful not to turn too critical an eye on ourselves. It's not helpful to condemn ourselves at the very time when we need strength. I believe that's the adversary trying to get at us. He's trying to take advantage of the situation. He wants to get at us when we're feeling weak. And he says, If I can get them to lose faith in themselves, maybe I can get them to lose hope. And if I can get them to lose hope, they'll be mine. Satan seeketh to make all men miserable like unto himself. And so maybe sometimes we think to ourselves, if only I had more faith, then God would remove this trial from me. He'd answer my prayer. If only I had made better choices in my youth, then this tragedy probably wouldn't have come. If only I had served more faithfully in the church, this wouldn't have happened. These kinds of thoughts are counterproductive at best and damning at worst. Oh no, we've got to maintain our integrity. Don't let the adversary discourage you. Job refused to allow Satan to convince him that he was a bad person, and that helped him to press forward with faith. One more. What eventually happens to Job? Let's read what happens in the final chapter. Job 42, verses 10 through 17. And the Lord turned the captivity of Job when he prayed for his friends. Also the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Then came there unto him all his brethren and all his sisters and all they that had been of his acquaintance before and did eat bread with him in his house. And they bemoaned him and comforted him over all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. Every man also gave him a piece of money and every one an earring of gold. So the Lord blessed the latter end of Job more than his beginning. For he had 14,000 sheep and 6,000 camels and a 1,000 yoke of oxen and a 1,000 she-asses. He had also seven sons and three daughters. And he names them in the next verse. And in all the land were no women found so fair as the daughters of Job. And their father gave them inheritance among their brethren. After this lived Job an hundred and forty years, and saw his sons and his sons' sons even four generations. So Job died, being old and full of days. My favorite line in that whole section comes from verse 12. So the Lord blessed the latter end of Job more than his beginning. I believe that is a promise and a line that will describe all those who endure their trials well. God will bless us in our latter end more than we ever experienced in our mortal lives. There's an end to all suffering and pain. Even the Savior was able to say, it is finished. God has made promises to those who hold out faithful to the end, like Job did. And those blessings are certain to come. Jeffrey R. Holland once said in one of my favorite conference talks of all time, some blessings come soon, some come late, Some don't come until heaven. 
But for those who embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ, they come. And then there's something that caught my attention in the naming of all of Job's later possessions. You'll notice that when you compare them to what he had in chapter 1, that the numbers doubled. He has twice as many sheep, twice as many camels, twice as many oxen, so on. But you might notice a change in the pattern when it comes to his children. He once again has seven sons and three daughters. But if this were to follow the same pattern as the animals, he should have 20 sons and six daughters, right? That'd make more sense. But why do you think the Lord only gives him ten sons and three daughters again? I think there's a gem of truth hidden in this. The truth of the matter is that God did double his children. How? Because those that he lost at the beginning of the story are still his. Death did not take his children from him. He'd still have them in the eternities. Death does not sever family ties. So in the end, Job really did receive twice the number of children that he had in the beginning. And I hope that little truth could maybe be a source of comfort to those of you who may have lost children. And I hope that all of these things that Job did can help each of us to carry our burdens a little easier, a little smoother. I hope that they can give us wheels to better carry the loads of life. So the truth When adversity strikes, if I maintain my faith, integrity, and trust in God, and remember that someday my trials will come to an end, and that I will be blessed more in the end than in the beginning, then I will have the strength to endure my trials well. To liken the scriptures, have any of Job's strategies worked for you in your own hardships? And what happened? To conclude, there are two seemingly contradictory scriptures that come to my mind when I consider adversity and the plan of salvation. They are Luke 9.23 and 2 Nephi 2.25. First in Luke, and he said to them all, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. And that first makes it sound like life as a disciple of Jesus Christ is going to be very hard got to take up our cross daily and carry it. On the other hand, 2 Nephi 2.25, Adam fell that men might be, and men are that they might have joy. Can you see the problem here? Can you see the contradiction? On the one hand, I know that life is going to be extremely difficult with lots of opposition and and, and tragedies and, and trials and troubles. But on the other hand, One of God's purposes for me in life is to be happy. So what gives? There's only one solution in my mind that that makes those two verses work together. We've got to learn how to find joy in a life, in a mortality, in a plan that allows for pain, suffering, injustice, and even death. I'm not saying that we need to wear rose-colored glasses, ignore adversity, or feel like mourning or crying or discouragement or sins. Those things are 100% appropriate. There's a time and a season for each of them. But God also wants us to find joy. And I believe that we can, despite the problems that we encounter. I believe that we can get through our troubles. We can get through our adversities, even, even the worst of them, and still maintain our faith. Job did it. Remember that it didn't come to stay. It came to pass. And I pray that every one of you, no matter what you're facing, will will be able to carry your load just like Job did. And I too would like to bear witness that I know that my Redeemer liveth and that he will stand upon the earth at the latter day and that I will see him in a resurrected body. And all trials, all pain, all death, all sorrow, all tears will one day be wiped away. Until then, let's be like Job. Continue faithful. Maintain your integrity. That's my prayer for all of us.
Well, brothers and sisters, thank you so much for spending this time with me in the book of Job today. I hope you learned something from it. I hope it was helpful. If it was, please share this with somebody that you know it could help. If any of you as teachers are interested in the resources that I make, you can go to teachingwithpower.com and you'll find links to those resources. As always, thank you so much for watching. Now get out there and teach with power.